out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, we are in conversation with Tim Scott McConnell to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other stuff. Sometimes known as just Tim Scott and um, has recently goes under the name of Leadfoot but was also in the Havelinas during the sort of late 80s, early 90s famous for many things, calls himself the master of gothic blues, but also has had songs um, covered by the likes of Bruce Springsteen, High Hopes, yes, that was one of Tim's numbers, and also Swear, that was covered by Sheena Easton many decades ago. Anyway, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the very interesting subject that was the early formative years. Tim, tell us more. You know, you know, it's like my my family is like my head. My I'm, I come. I have a really heavy Southern, um, you know, North American heritage. I'm like, I'm Irish and Cherokee Indian. My family's from like Norfolk, Virginia, and Chattanooga, Tennessee, and um, I hung out a lot with my grandfather and and uh, Clarence Clarence Foster Sims, and he always said to me like, Timmy. I don't like singers who are male who sing in a high voice, you know. So, so I'd sit in this. He had, he had an Eldorado man. I sit in this fucking Eldorado, and we listened to Johnny Cash and like Marty Robbins, and and uh, you know all these singers with like a low voice, and and uh, I, I I guess it was like Johnny. Ca- Actually, you know, the first song I ever learned was this song by Johnny Cash called "Mean Eyed Cat." You know, and it was just like, you know, he was talking about going to the fucking grocery or about his, his wife going to the grocery store. And, and there was just this kind of like, I don't know, connection, you know. But. um, Yeah. Yes. So, it was, <laughs> I, it was a bit, so it's a very southern country background that you came from. Yeah. I, I mean, I talk like this, really. This is the way I really talk. But yes. I learned I learned to talk. I learned to talk so you guys can perfectly understand everything I say. Yes. So, 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 when, I learned, so I learned to talk like this, you know. Nice. I like that. So when did you pick up a guitar? When did that sort of appear in your life? It was uh you know, it was like when I was when I was like around like ten or eleven or so, I was like I I I uh I had this disease and I was like a fucking cripple and that there wasn't a whole lot of shit you could do because I couldn't walk. And, uh, and, um, I think I kind of picked it up then, you know, it was like something that you could do in bed, you know? And, and, uh, but I, 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 um, somewhere around like 13 or 14, I lived in, I lived in Wales and in Milford Haven. And my my father was like a, he worked on on like power plants and shit like that. So I moved out there with her because my parents had just divorced and shit. And I sat there and I got a fucking banjo and and uh, it was me and the fucking cows and the banjo and 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 I had an acoustic guitar too and it and it just kind of like became my you know my church. 
<laughs> yes. So there was a, there was an instant moment. So when you were okay, I, I'm in my mid fifties. I was born sixty four. So my my formative years were very much the early seventies. But you would have been kind of hovering around the late sixties when there was a huge change. Did that sort of filter down to the south at all? Did you start picking up on some youth? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't until like you know I I lived like my my parents moved from like from uh. We were living in New Jersey then, but we moved from New Jersey to Spain to keep my older brother out of the Vietnam War, you know. And so we lived there for like four years. So I missed a whole lot of that thing. But I came back when I was around like 13 or 14 years old. And um, and I was an outcast, you know, because I'd, I'd been living in Barcelona and shit like that. And I came back and I didn't work in the South at all. I'd lost my accent. I'd lost my whole connection with, with that place. And I got into like, um, I started playing a lot then. And I started playing in bar bands. And, and when I was like 17, I went, fuck this. And I had a 23 year old girlfriend and her and I, I had, I had like, I think I had like 80 bucks and I had about like 12 guitars because you could buy guitars cheap in pawn shops in the South. And I moved to New York, you know, and I thought like, this is so, so I, I kind of grew up more around like my, my first manager was Hilly Crystal from CBGB's. Right. You know, you know, and, and I grew up much more in that, that scene, you know, like, like, Johnny Thunders made sure I always got in free and I always got drink tickets. You know, it's like I came up very much out of that, 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 um, that place. And, but before that, I'd been working for like two or three years underage in biker bars and playing like, you know, Sweet Home Alabama and shit like that. So, so it was like, by the time I was about 17, that was my fucking job, you know, and it never changed. Yes, it was Route One. There must be, I must admit, there's a few people who I've always admired. David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead were always like, there was just going to be music and nothing else, and that was it. Whatever happened, the ups and downs and the lows, even poverty, they were still going to stick with the music. So, yes, obviously that got you. But New York at that time was quite impoverished, wasn't it? There wasn't a lot of money about it, and it sounded quite great. Well, it wasn't, you know, impoverished, you know, that's, that's a relative term. You know, financially it was impoverished, and yes, there were lots of fucking rats on the street, and the garbage was always on strike, and, and there was, like, junkies all over the place, and it was like, you know, like, there were, you know, like, when I, when I used to go, like, you know, when I was, like, like, 19 or 20, and I used to go to like the east side to like score pot, you know, and, and I'd like, as soon as I got to Avenue A, the first thing I'd do, because this is the old day with like antennas, I'd snap an antenna off the nearest car, the first car that I walked off, I'd snap off the antenna so I had something to fight with. You know, it was like, these were like, it was, it was a fucking, it was like evil. It was an evil city. And that was like, it was like Shanghai. It was the most beautiful thing in the world. If you were like, you know, 20 years old and you wanted to be a fucking musician who was actually just wanting to be a fucking pirate, you know, you know, it was a, it was a beautiful place to go. Yes, well, absolutely. And then, I mean, at 72, 73, you'd had the New York Art Dolls. We had Alice Cooper doing Schools Out. So the birth of that kind of garage punk scene was happening, Iggy Pop and the Stooges. So when you were from the South and then you sort of heard this scene and then you saw David 
Johansson and uh, Johnny Thunders and uh, Noland as well. Did that? They were like. I was going to say, did that sort of like a, ooh, a, a moment happen in your you life? You have to understand in those times, it's like, first of all, there was no mythology around these people. You know, they're, they're, they were like musicians who had had a couple records out and you wanted to be like them because you were younger. And it was like, you know, I used to like guard the dressing room while Johnny and Jerry would shoot up, you know, and, and keep everybody out, you know, and like, and, but it was just like, it was like, um, they weren't, there was no mythology around them. You know what I mean? They were yeah. like, you know, everybody knew that Johnny was a junkie, Jerry was a junkie, and that you like, you know, you didn't, um, you just lived in the scene. You know, you didn't really think about it. It's like when when we started touring a lot and then we toured like, like crazy, like, you know, like 200 days a year and everything like that with the Rockets and everything like that. And we, when we first went out, we took Jerry Nolan was our drummer, you know, from the Dolls. And we had to get him to a methadone clinic every fucking morning, you know, and it was like, it was like, you know, it was a lesson. It really taught me, you know, it's like, it was a slow os osmosis that I, I, I got to a place where I realized I'm either going to be a fuck up or I'm going to be a musician. And yes. I always want absolutely you know. but as you said at the beginning when you had a relative who was talking about sort of, um men singing in a low voice or definitely not in a high voice how did how did that then sort of background and then seeing men with makeup looking quite sometimes androgynous and beautiful at the same time and you saw david bowie and you know all this mascara and when i was like you know when i was like when i i grew up in the south and i, I was living in florida then and and it was like I was I was like 17 years old and I was playing in bar bands and when I play in a biker when I play in a bar, you know, we'd go up on stage and set up and then the owner of the bar would show me the nearest exit when the police came because I was underage and everything like that. But then when I'd finished playing those gigs, I didn't want to hang out with big bikers who would beat the shit out of me, which they did quite often. You know. And so instead I would like go and I would like you know, I couldn't get into a bar as as a as a, a eighteen year old man because I was skinny and and everything like that. But if I put fucking lisp, lipstick on, I could get into a lesbian bar, man, and I could pass for a fucking twenty year old woman. You know, and all I had to do in those days is basically like as I was standing in line, put some lipstick on, grab my girlfriend's hand, and then I was like her girlfriend. You know, we get into a bar and I could have fucking drinks and we could like, you know, and 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 so it's like when I went to New York and I went into that, you know, that whole scene. It was like, you know, the the underground there was like an all encompassing thing in those days. It wasn't. It wasn't. There weren't like factions and like little tribes like there are now, where people have these particular fetishes and that's what they're into. In those days, you were either an outcast or you weren't an outcast. So lesbians hung out with rockers, and gays hung out with rockers, and and drag queens hang out with rockers, and rockers hang out with punk porn stars, and like everybody was in the same shadow. You know what I mean? Yes, but it's interesting because 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 having spoke to Smutty Smith, I mean he was you know he sort of got sort of like from Essex working class Essex kid to New York with this kind of absolutely on the A list with everybody that you that we look back and you think God Robert Maplethorpe. Smutty, 
Well, I hung out with Robert too. You know, it's funny I used to do Robert's hair and shit like that, you know, but but you have to understand that, that was the reason Smuddy and I met when I think like I was like 20 and he was 19 or something like that. And that's when I joined the Rockettes. But we were like the same way he came from Essex. I came from fucking the South. You know, I was white. I grew up in a trailer home. I was born in a trailer home, you know. So so we were both like our own version of white trash and met. And and Smuddy is, you know, we're, we're like dear brothers and we have been and we will be our whole life just because we were like, you know, you know, he was an English artful dodger and I was a Southern artful dodger. Yeah, <laughs> so obviously the peace, love and understanding of the 60s had sort of passed you by. You didn't, did you sort of pick up on any of that during the 70s, you know, going back and listening to? Well, you, you know, the 70s is weren't about that at all. You know, the, the 70s were like, you know, at the point that you got into the mid 70s and when you were doing that shit and like that, all that peace, love and understanding shit was was bullshit because because it turned into uh, Fleetwood Mac. It turned into like a horse with no name and this really cliche commercial shit and everything like that. And really, it was like, you know, it was like. When you're when you're like 18 years old or and something like that, and you want to rebel, the very tools that they used in the 60s to rebel with were completely useless to you because they'd already been used. So you had to go another way. I mean, I remember like you know like fucking taking my belt bottoms and sewing the legs fucking straight and and trying to just like go like I am not one of you, you know. So and that was the birth of of you know like. All of that shit that happened, it happened in England, it happened in, on the East Coast in America, it happened on the West Coast all at different times in different ways. But it was basically everybody saying like, you know, like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, like, like all the classic rockers kind of look like your father. Yes, that, that would be scary. And, and you... acted like had the opinions of your father too that this is right and this is wrong and this is right and this is wrong. And it's like, no, if I'm fucking 18 years old and I have some fucking social fucking problems that I'm dealing with and I'm a so and I'm a social cripple basically and I need to express myself, I'm not gonna be able to do it by pretending to be a fucking 29-year-old member of Led Zeppelin. No. Yes, well, absolutely. Because in Liverpool, there was a sort of scene called Eric's, and there was a kind of a group of people called Big in Japan. And I remember Jane Casey, who was one of the people who were part of that. There was like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and people from Beckham the Bunny Man. But she said that we were all the freaks, and she said we all wore our neurosis on stage. Did you also feel that everybody was a little bit same, the same as that, sort of, you know, everybody's kind of background life? at that moment i i think that i think that like you know that there was this this like um i th I, th I think that you know it's it's like this shit has happened you know i've i've been i've been a professional musician now for 45 years you know over 45 years you know and and it's like um you like things go in wave waves culturally you know yes. and 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 what what is groundbreaking you know 10 years back is is um 
written in stone 10 years later. You know, you're constantly going through this shit. And, and I think that like, um, there's not supposed to be rules. It's not, it's not supposed to go any certain way and everything like that. And I, th I think that when, when you came out of like the sixties and all these bands that were revolutionary, all of a sudden were very homogenized. And then you had to figure out a new way to be revolutionary, but you couldn't be revolutionary by being good. You had to be revolutionary by just like saying like, you know, I don't give a shit how big my dick is. I'm going to take it out and wave it around, you know, and like, and, <laughs> and 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 be proud of it you know and and i think like you know then and then that turned into new wave and punk and all this shit like that and then like fucking like six years later all that shit was all of a sudden it turned into like i know this much is true you know and and all this fucking lame shit and then it fucking died down again and then it came out with like you know with like the hair metal guys trying to revitalize themselves and then that went down and then fucking grunge came up and then grunge went down and then like jesus christ i'm so tired of it yes well absolutely <laughs> and did you sort of okay so then when you hit the rockettes um yeah, Rockettes. Did that, because uh, that was a psychobilly band, did that, did you sort of fit together quite well? Because that was kind of slightly... Well, we weren't, we weren't psychobilly. You know, like I said, our, our first, the, really the first real drummer of the Rockets was Jerry Nolan, you know, and, and we rehearsed in the same place as the Heartbreakers and we used to all show up and, and Johnny used to jam with us all the time and, and so did Iggy Pop and so did like Phil Linnett and all these guys who were around who were all like borderline junkies and working around in that in that thing but 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 the rockets were kind of like we were much more akin to like to like the faces you know we were just a wild fucking let's get fucked up and play rock and roll band yes. and, and and um and we did it under the guise of rockabilly um and we did like you know when we got signed when the rockets got signed we got signed to iron records and the way that it happened was like we were playing in Haraz's bar in uptown New York. And um, Grace Jones was signed with Island Records and she loved the way we dressed because we looked like, like the New York Dolls meet Elvis. You know, we were like fucking way over the top. And so she used to come and see us all the time. So then she decided to bring down Chris Blackwell, you know, and said, you've got to see this band. They're just like so over the top. And so he, she brought down, Grace Jones brought down Chris Blackwell. And that night, just by chance, we like, uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on in town anywhere else, but all the, you know, like Iggy Pop showed up, Johnny Thunder showed up, um, Frankie Infante from Blondie, um, uh, Phil Linnett, you know, like all these, all these fuckers showed up. And we did like, after we finished playing, we did like, like three encores, which was basically like all of us on stage together, switching around instruments, trying to play round and round and like, you know, like all these fucking lame fucking songs. And then we finished it and we went backstage and, and um, we got a knock on the door and they and, and someone said, uh, uh, Chris Blackwell would like to meet you guys. And we, you know, we went, fuck off fuck off yes so does elvis elvis wants to meet <laughs> you know like fuck off fuck off and then grace jones like just basically like opened the door and came in and said like this is chris 
this new grace, you know, like, but, um, but those, in those days, it was, like I said, it was like, you know, everything like cross pollinated, it, 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 it wasn't like it is now where people are so concerned about what they're a part of. You were a part of anti-establishment anti and that was like enough to get you in the club, you know. Yes, absolutely. And then obviously you sort of do an incredible kind of moment in, in your, your so, solo career because um, did that sort of come together quite quick because from the sort of the Rockettes with that live album at the Ritz, which was kind of like 81. Well, I was doing, you know, I was with the Rockettes and we were touring, but I was, I was a songwriter. You know, I started writing songs really early on in, in my evolution as a musician. And um, what happened was, was there was this guy, Ron Ross, who worked with Richard Goddard and Richard Goddard wrote, he wrote like my boyfriend's back and he wrote sorrow you know david bowie's song sorrow he wrote that he was part of the strange loves and he's also he was like you know sire records is like the s and the e is from seymour stein and the r and the i is from richard Goddard. so it was the first two letters of their first name that made sire records and richard Goddard, his his assistant um was going out with my sister and and he heard and and the rockets were a huge band we were one of the biggest bands in new york at the time underground bands and we would sell out like the ritz which was 2500 we'd sell it like three nights in a row you know we were like a really big new york band and she said you know my brother has all these other songs and she started playing because i gave my sister cassette demos of the songs and she brought them to richard goddard and richard goddard offered me a production deal and i thought okay i can either be like a guitar player with big hair in a rockabilly band, or I can maybe be an artist, you know, so I took the deal and I left the Rockettes and, um, and you know, started doing other shit. And yes. up <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but then your first album has the big single on Swear, doesn't it? Which is obviously big, you know, a moment. Well, that was, that was, you know, it was a big moment. It was a big moment for me as, as a personally, as an artist and everything like that, where I realized, okay, do I want to be like full of shit or do I want to try to say something? Because honestly, I wrote Swear. I was like, I'd, I'd signed over to, to Richard Goddard and, and um, I went to see my family in Tampa, Florida, my grandparents. And I was, and, and I, because of like, travel I couldn't carry guitar with me so I took this little Casio keyboard like one of those original Casio keyboards and I went home and I had that and I had a fucking cassette recorder and I started going like and I wrote it as a joke and I actually wrote about six songs like that you know just with like you know like as a joke as a fucking joke and I sent him to Richard Goddard and he goes like this is a fucking record, <laughs> and, and originally Swear was called Chairs. You know, it was originally it was called like you know it was it was just this like Dadaist kind of absurd song about like chairs. You know, like the ways you could sit in chairs and what kind of chairs there were. And then I thought that's not going to work, so I turned it into Swear. Yes, well, absolutely. And you must have felt chuffed when Gina. Gina Easton, all the way from, is it Easton? From Actually, I wasn't, I'll tell you something, I wasn't because, because I was like, in those days, I, I was with Warner Chapel and, and I was a house writer also, I was writing songs for lots of people, you know, trying to write stuff. And, um, 
And at the time, um, this is honest, it was up whether or not Swear was going to be done by Sheena Easton or as a duet by, by David Bowie and Tina Turner. Yeah. And, and it was like, you know, and I was like, David Bowie, Tina Turner, David Bowie, Tina Turner. <laughs> Sheena Easton's going to do it. That's great. That's great. You know, I got a platinum record. I never picked it up. <laughs> God. yes that's always tricky and how were you i mean because because the 80s was quite i suppose that was the decade that i became quite obsessed with music during that period and and obviously there had been like you said the hair metal but in in, in the uk there was the mainstream charts that had that horrible production sound of trevor horn with you know like frankie goes to hollywood band or Bally, true and then there was all the indie stuff. So where, so how were you navigating that period as well? Well, that's when that's when I put, you know, that I I liked it. I did a record with Geffen, you know, a solar, and and with that record, I used like basically I used like the cream of the crop of like, you know, I used like um, Jerry Chef and James Burton who played with Elvis. I used like Alex Acuna who played with Weather Report. Um, Mickey Curry, who played on everything from Elvis Costello to uh, to Hall and Oates and shit like that, and I got this, and I did that record, and it wasn't what I wanted because I'm I'm a really like no bullshit kind of guy, and so um, I did that record, and I thought like I'm I'm just like I'm not actually cut out for the music business, so so I left that company or they kind of actually I only sold I think I sold like 130,000 copies so I was like failure in those days (laughs) (laughs) and and so like they dropped me from the label and then I said fuck it I don't don't want to do this and Smutty you know who you interviewed he showed up he he was he'd been in in Arizona at a at a Ron Woods manager's ranch and he came back and he just he'd had a hard time and he'd come back from it and he showed up and, and I said, you know, fuck the music business. And he said, fuck the music business. And let's put a band together, you know, just the two of us. And uh, what are we going to call it? And he said, you know, I've been in Arizona, man. And there's these fucking wild pigs. And these wild pigs, they just do whatever the fuck they want. And they're called javelinas, you know. And it was spelled with a J. And we said, like, okay, well, we're not quite that. Let's just put an H in front and call ourselves the javelinas. And then we got a... Um, Charlie Quintana, you know, from uh, from Cruzados and from Social Distortion or anything like that. He played with Dylan, you know, anything like that. But we put it together, and we basically I didn't want to do a record deal, and and we had like at one point the last we started playing this small place in LA, and and the last three times we tried to play the fire department closed it down because we had two hundred people in line out at you know outside of the club. And did it, but we had like all these record companies wanted to do deals, and I wouldn't meet them because I, I was completely disillusioned. I didn't, I thought, I, I, you know, I grew up on fucking Woody Guthrie. I thought, fuck it, we're just going to be this like Grateful Dead alternative fuck you band. And then, and then like Carol Childs, who at that time she was Bob Dylan's girlfriend, you know, and she was Electra, she'd just done the, the Lion King with, with Electra Records, so she was big shit. And she was from Brooklyn, you know? And uh, she basically, like, I wouldn't come out and meet the record company, and she kicked open the door of the kitchen, which was the dressing room. She goes like, fuck you, we're gonna do a fucking deal. And I was <laughs> like, 
I was like, fuck it, yeah, I like her. I like her. And so we did a deal. <laughs> and really? then like, and about two months after that, we were just getting the deal together and everything like that. And she brought Bob Dylan down to, we were playing a, a benefit for an orphanage. And um, I was in a really asshole mood the night and we, we basically, we just tore the house apart. And then Bob Dylan came back and kicked off, um, who was Trash Can Sinatra's. He kicked, he kicked Trash Can Sinatra's off the tour and said, okay, you guys want to go on tour? So we toured with Dylan. And, you know. Nice, nice. So did you, did you have your, did you have a Jimmy Iovine moment? Was it, because I remember Smutty talking about having this moment. Yeah, with, that, with our fucking dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had like, you know, it was, it was like, you know, it was really funny because we, we, you know, when Smutty and I put the Havilians together, it was completely anti-establishment. And of course, what happens in a place like LA is if you say, you know, fuck you loud enough, everybody wants to fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and so we like had all these people coming down. And so we got signed to Electra and we got like, it made a lot of news. We got a really big deal and everything like that. And they're bringing all these producers and we used to rehearse in Smutty's living room. And um, we're all like dog lovers, you know? So we all had these fucking dogs. And Jimmy Iovine pulls out in front of this like fucking basically like, you know, middle-class Chicano fucking, you know, Adobe looking, you know, small house. And he comes in and and Smutty had just like cleverly just built this fucking pond in his backyard for frogs. He wanted to have all these fucking tadpoles and shit. And, and like the dogs, of course, go into the water, go into the mud. Jimmy Iovine walks out in a white fucking suit. And, and the dogs just go for him. You know, like, it was it was wonderful. <laughs> and also, also then we start to play for the motherfucker and Smutty's dog Joya, bless her heart, she uh, she loved to sing along whenever I played harmonica. So we're trying to we're playing like some really good songs, you know. And and uh, and I'd go into like a harmonica solo and all of a sudden, because we were playing in the living room, so it wasn't that loud, all of a sudden this dog would start going and singing along, you know, and I and because she'd done it every rehearsal, I'd start to jam with her, which didn't really like if you liked Yoko Ono, it was really good. Yes, avant-garde art. That that that's a classic. But you did too, I mean, you got a couple of albums with the Havelinas, didn't you? With um, go well, the yeah. self-titled, and then go north. So you you sort of you you sort of branched the way well, you navigated between the eighties and the nineties at that stage. Yeah, it was you know the the Havelinas were like uh, it you know it was a band that was it was a really special band and it was based on three personalities you know like like so many bands are that that without the integral elements, you know, you can never recreate them again. Yes, know, but, absolutely. I mean, and obviously your songwriting and, and craftsmanship was, was, was absolutely working beautifully at this stage, wasn't it? You had been writing some incredible songs. So you must have well, You know, I'd learned, I'd, I, I, I was like, you know, one of my like bass talents, because because I, I, I didn't turn into like an okay singer until I was maybe like 35 or 40, you know, until then I sang like shit, you know, and, and, um, but the thing that I had going for me was that, 
you know, from from being like trailer trash, growing up in trailers, going, I went to 20 schools and I skipped a grade. So in 11 years, I went to 20 schools, you know, and I, and I grew up, you know, until I was 12, I used to write my address on my leg because I didn't know where I lived, you know, and, and that shit and being like a cripple and then going into the New York scene and, and, you know, like, being in the Rockets and showing up at gigs in Texas where the bouncers said, like, you guys aren't going to play tonight, you know, or they beat the shit out of us and doing all that shit. It was like, I learned my craft, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, uh, you know, you know, it, it, it's taken me a long time to learn my craft. Yes. You know, as, as it does anybody who does something good. But did you, can you remember where you were when you must have, when you wrote High Hopes? Can you remember mm -hmm. the moment? Exactly, exactly where I am. I was, I was like, uh, it was when I was leaving, I left Sire Records um, and I, I had a hit with Swear and they wanted me to do a, a follow-up record. And, and I basically like, went to the studio and recorded all this crazy ass shit and then said fuck you and walked out on the deal and then i got a job working on it on a on a on a jig you know like on on the side of like a building a brownstone in new york with smutty the two of us we'd like tie ourselves to a chimney every morning and we'd jump over the side of the building drop ourselves down two meters to a fucking like scaffolding thing and we paint the outside and windows you know and like do shit like that and it was because i was going fuck you to the record company so we're doing that and like like when we were like every morning we you know i don't know if you know what it's like to be six stories up and we're talking brownstone so it's really fucking hot and you know like the the lip of the building is really fucking big and you have to like go over it and then you have to hang and you have to drop about a meter and a half to the scaffolding because it can't go up any higher than that. And so I would like kind of go like that Frank Sinatra song or Sammy Davis, like, got high hopes, high, you know, like, la, 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 and doing it like, you know, but after you do this a few times and when you do it with a hangover and when you do it like, you know, like, and shit like that, then it, it started just turning into like, got high hopes, and at the time I was listening to like a whole lot of like, you know, like chain gang music. And I've always been heavy into like roots music and and, and indigenous music from America. And now I was into this chain gang thing where it's like, got high hopes, Monday morning runs up, Sunday night, got high hopes, slow me down. And I just started thinking that way but it all came from like fucking going over the side of a six story building with a hangover and going like, God, hopes. Well, blimey, that is, that is quite the thing, isn't it? It does kind of focus, <laughs> I guess it does focus the mind, doesn't it? When you're in that place. Well, it was also, you know, I don't, I don't take it as light as it coming from this song like that, because it was also that I basically said, fuck you to a record deal and gotten a job as, as a construction, you know, a hardcore, I got danger pay. Somebody and I got danger pay, man. Yes. And, but it, but it was kind of like, you know, like this kind of like, um, where I realized that I didn't want to be a product of the business, but I wanted to be 
you know, like to be a part unto myself, to be an artist, you know. And how were you coping? Because obviously we all have like those periods. Everyone has, well, not everyone, but they, they were, you know, there are those kind of moments, aren't there, where, you know, there's a scene and then that does change. Whatever happens, it's going to change. You can't say the same. And by then, that sort of late 80s and early 90s, obviously a lot of the people you had been with in the 80s, you know, things move on and, and things get... That's the scariest, you know, that's the scariest thing for me. Like, I've, I've never understood. It's like, you know, is is that like... <clears throat> the very process of being any kind of consequent artist is to kind of be like a shark that you have to fucking keep going to breathe you know and that you have to keep moving forward and you don't you don't um you don't fucking throw out a fucking hook and hook onto a fucking moment in your career as an artist and say i'm going to base the rest of my future on this fucking moment that i had where i had a hit single or where I, where people really like talk about my band a lot and it's like that jesus christ if you can't reinvent yourself and make yourself interesting again as a, as who you are right now as as what you are right now if that's not fucking interesting enough then stop doing it you know like then like it's great it's great i love to go and see like you know like like people recreate the thing that i loved about them but um but the main thing that i loved about them at that time wasn't the fucking song and wasn't that it was them playing it it was about that fucking emotion and that fucking that they were giving to me because they were my age and because they had this story to tell that I agreed with right now. I don't need to hear that when I'm fucking 62. I wanna hear something from another fucking 62 year old that makes me go, fuck you, I'm 62. Yes, well, absolutely. But, you know, by by then, you know, like with every party, we can outstay it. And, and you realize that all those people that you were hanging out with were either dead or dying and weren't looking so good. So you and Smutty were surviving that, even though obviously you had some other, you know, probably issues, but you know, Andy Warhol had died, you had AIDS, you had all that heroin that had happened in the sort of New York scene. And, and a lot of those people were not looking good or were already dead. So, so did you sort of have a bit of an existential, existential sort of moment as well as you got into the nineties? No, I got, I, you know, it was just by chance when I was, when in like 93 or 94, the, the Rockets broke up and we just finished touring with Crowded House, I think. And, and uh, we broke up in England. And um, it was right after we'd done the Go North gigs and shit that that record came from. And um, so we broke up and my father lived in England. So I went and also my dog was still in quarantine. So I had to wait for my dog to get a passport, an English passport. And, and I got offered a solo tour in Norway and I thought, fuck it, yeah, okay, so I'll do that. So I took three acoustic guitars and went to Norway. And um, coming from America, I didn't realize Norway was so fucking small. But I like, you know, I'm touring, I, I'm touring and it's like I do about 15 gigs and I'm getting really good fucking money really good money you know because i'm in the last year i drew with bob dylan with like you know like shitloads of people and and i'm getting i'm thinking like no it's kind of cool 
And I didn't have a place to live because the last two years I was with the Havelinas, we toured so much that I stopped keeping an apartment. So I thought, I'll get an apartment in Norway. And lo and behold, I fell in love and I had a kid. And then I thought, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be here. This is, you know, this is where I'm gonna be. And um, that's what happened, you know, and I, I, I had to start over, you know, and it's, it, it was like, I had a whole lot of offers, you know, from like, you know, like MCA, from, from, uh, from Warners, from all these things to come over and do stuff in the States. But once you come to England or you come to Norway, you come to anybody who has any kind of like social health and everything like that, and you realize I'm going to have to pay for all my kids' doctor visits, or I can stay here in Norway. <laughs> you know, so I stayed. <laughs> Excellent. And then, you know, as, as, you know, coming up, jump in a decade or so, you, you sort of reinvent yourself to being Leadfoot. What was, what was the rationale behind that? It was that I, uh, you know, I, I, I've been like for, for 20 years or so, I've been a band leader and I've been trying to, um, being a band leader and the main songwriter and the singer and everything like that, you have this vision of what you want and you're constantly compromising it and sometimes to the better, you know, sometimes to the better, but often to the worse. But I thought like, you know, this isn't what it's about for me. It's like, I really want to figure out, you know, like, like I, you know, I play like shitloads of instruments, you know, and I thought I just want to, um, what does it take to send chills up a motherfucker's back? You know, what, what does it take to do that? And, and so I started going to sources and I realized like, you know, like, that's what I got from all this. I'm a Southerner. That's what I got from Woody Guthrie. That's what I got from Robert Johnson. That's what I got from Alan Wolf. I got from all these fuckers. And I thought, what do they do? They just work really fucking hard. And they have a really strong message to deliver. So I thought, okay, I can't write in their vernacular. And, and, and my uh, knowledge of music is so much broader than what they had coming from their background. I have a huge, I have fucking Led Zeppelin, I have ABBA, you know, I have fucking everybody. I've got, I've got, you know, Bella Bartok, I've got like, you know, like, fuck me, you know, and Schoenberg, you know, it's like, and so I'm thinking, you know, I can't, like, I'm going to do what they did, you know, because like in those old things, what they did is they took an instrument and they, they like turn it into an assault weapon, you know? And like on my guitar, you know, like on this fucker, it's like, you know, my high E string, you know, is a 19 and my low E string is a 59. And it's like, you know, it's like, it's like a fucking tank and I have to hit it really hard. And then I have to sing really hard to get over that. But then I thought that's what fucking Robert Johnson did. He's playing in a, in a room with maybe 30, 40 people who are dancing and who are drunk and are flirting and are like talking. And he's got to fucking rise above that. And I realized that fucking job, doing that job creates that form of music. So that's what I do with lead foot, you know, like with my lead foot records, like I don't, I don't punch in. I don't like the guitar and my voice are just boom, 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 boom. That's what it is. And I work my ass off and, and, you know, like my aunt, Aunt Martha, she said to me like, Timmy, I just love to see a man work. 
So, because where, where did you, I mean, when did you start really focusing on your picking? Because I, not since... Um, well, my know, first, I told, I told you earlier, my first instrument was banjo, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, and so, so I, I always picked and everything like that, but I didn't really think about incorporating it into, into all of that until I thought like, fuck it, I want to be a band myself. So I know with my foot, and and it's like you know if i if i use you know like scrogs picking is basically what i do but if i use it with with aggression and i use it um in rock and roll mentality then you know then you're getting into like you know like like that's that's motorhead that is motorhead. You, know, you know and I, and I realized like you know like it was all about intention and doing it and i didn't if i put heavy enough strings where i could get into the bass register and i and i like had a 12 string so i had the high register happening and i like i i don't use any normal tuning i use about eight different tunings but none of them are normal and then i like um just add a fucking beat to it i don't have to be a band leader anymore yes well absolutely but the interesting thing <laughs> is listen to your the solo albums quite recently they're very they've got you've got a very rhythmic quality for somebody who picks because often it's 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 often very clever but it doesn't sort of hit the soul whereas your i notice your music is all about hitting the soul isn't it right in the guts so um yes well, it's, it's like you know it's syncopated man it's like you know it's like you know, um, the modern world has perfect machines that just go but the world that I grew up in and and also the sounds that I that I visually heard when my grandfather, who was a hardworking motherfucker, walked across the yard and that like that awkward machine thing goes that's the way that you they're walking in a fucking straight line, you know? So, so it's like, you know, they're just trying to go like, you know, like. It's clumsy and awkward and going all over the fucking place. And that's what I realized, like, yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about right now. Can you remember the first time you heard R.L. Burnside, because that that's kind of got that kind of gothic southern blues, hasn't it? Where he well, everybody has their things, you know. Like for me, it was like you know, um, I I uh, you know, like Man Slips Gone, you know, and um, and um, fucking um, Reverend Gary, you know. There's it's I'm not I'm not like an artist person. I'm a song person, yes. you know, but. You know, like Jack of Diamonds is a hard card to beat, or or Death Don't Have No Mercy in This World, or or um, um, Rock Pile by Johnny Cash, or or Dark as a Dungeon. You know, it's like it's like you know, like um, Knoxville Girl by Leuven Brothers. You know, fucking like Sixteen Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford. You know, it's like all these songs. You know, it's like you know that where I come from, there's this history 
of um, expressing the beauty of failure, <laughs> of going wrong, you know, and it's, you know, even down to like, you know, like, like El Paso, you know, down to like, you know, like all this shit, it's like, that, that is like, um, that's rock and roll. It is rock and roll. So look, it's quite, it's quite, I was listening to your uh, sort of solo, the, uh, the later, very recent albums. They're quite dark lyrics, aren't they? You know, dead, dead man can do. They're quite chilling, aren't they? There's a gothic quality, isn't there? Well, are they dark or are they realistic? You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, this is the whole thing. It's like, you know, it's like, I realized like, you know, when you talked about, you know, like, you know, I get, a, I, there's, you know, like, in small, you know, in blues purists and everything like that, they don't, own, they don't really consider me a blues artist, but, but, but it's because they're talking about genre. And when you talk about emotional content, which is the very definition of blues, it's the only musical genre that is described by a musical state, by an emotional state. you you have the blues. You know, you have the it's it's the only musical genre that's described by emotional state. And the and the problem is is like people have put it into to a timeline, into a time frame where they think it's one, four, five, and they think that it's about somebody, you know, I don't know how to fucking dust a broom. You know, I don't <laughs> I, I don't you know, it's like, you know, it's like in the old days, in the old days with blues and the birth of blues, it was about worry. But, but if you take that, and that's why I call it Gothic Blues, is because I'm taking like, you know, and I'm talking about an architectural sense. I'm talking about the complexity of, of society and architecture and the way that we work as a society, that it's become much more complex than worry. It's turned into angst. It's turned into um, um, all kind of different phobias and shit like that. And so like, you know, like, in a sense, when you think of the evolution of news, you can't write about worry anymore. You write about angst. Angst has taken over worry. And my blues is about angst. So I write about this shit because it's catharsis. Just say like, you know, like, is it gonna get that bad? And then, you know, there's this side of you when you hear a song that's telling you how bad it's gonna fucking get, that you go like, but the motherfucker who's singing it is strong and he's saying, fuck you, I'm going to get through it. Just like John Lee Hooker did, just like, you know, like Muddy Waters, like, you know, all these motherfuckers are going like, it's hard, but I'm moving on. I'm moving on. My rhythm, my rhythm is actually proving that. My And so that's what I do. But instead of talking about my lyrics aren't dark, they're realistic. You know, they're, they're honest. It did remind me of the, the it was a, Lemmy did a song called Dead Men, Dead Men Don't Tell, No, Don't Tell Lies or something like that. So I did, no, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Yeah. Uh, Stab You in the Back was another one, wasn't it? There was, yeah. there was a kind of quality. I thought, oh, that sounds a bit like some slightly similar kind of coming from a similar world as that. And did you, I mean, do you feel quite a relief out of, you know, through these decades that you and Smutty has, have managed to navigate it? Because you're obviously quite young kids. I mean, you know, 20 years. Well, it's, you know, it's like, we, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, get us in a fucking police lineup and make us take our shirts off. We'll both show you our scars, you know. And it's, and it's like, you can say that about any, like the the percentage of like you know like 
the percentage of guys that of you know the 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 gang that I grew up in, you know, like all these guys from CBs, from the Ramones, the Plasmatics, to the Cramps, to like, you know, all these guys, man, they, you know, it's the amount that have actually survived and the amount that actually didn't lose direction and stop being a musician, or they became a version of musician, which was questionable, you know, and did like it, but the, but the actual guys who actually just said like, you know, fuck it, I'm not, I'm not supposed to be popular. I'm not supposed to be any of this shit. It's just this, I am cursed with this desire to continue in this genre, to continue <laughs> in this fucking place. I'm cursed by it. I can't stop myself. And and those guys are very few. And even, you know, even with Smutty, it's like, you know, it's a hard fucking road. I mean, he's, he's DJing now and he's doing this wonderful thing propagating music and everything like that but you know it's like when he talks to me i'm going like you motherfucker why aren't you making music why are you fucking playing music <laughs> yes. you know and 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 it's like and the reason he's not is because it is fucking hard to do it's hard to do it with integrity you know and integrity is such a bullshit term in the first place you know so, so the fact that you're trying to uphold the bullshit term in the first place is hard work. <laughs> like, <laughs> did, you, did you slightly fall off your chair though when you found that Bruce Springsteen was covering one of your songs and called the album after it as well? Um, you know, he before he did that, he did about like seven or eight years before that, he did um he did another version of it at this video that he put out where he put the E Street Band back together and they did a version which was without the, the you know, the guitar player and shit on the new version. But, um, but yeah, I was, I, you know, the, the way I found out was I got a phone call from Rolling Stone and they asked me what I thought about it and it was the first I'd heard about it, you know. So, um, but I, you know, I'm, 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 I was, you know, I'm flattered. You know, it's the same way that I was flooded when Sheena Easton did shit. Not, you know, when I got over my youth and my my attitude from you know, my young youngness, and I and as a grown man, I'm I'm deeply, um, you know, it's 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 a wonderful thing that Sheena Easton did my song. It's a wonderful thing that that uh, who lots of people have done my stuff. And when he did the thing, it's like, I'm thinking, okay, well, this motherfucker writes good songs and um, and he's chosen. We talked about, he, you know, I met him and we talked about that song and everything. But, um, I'm, you know, it's a big compliment anytime that any artist, it's even like, you know, it's even when like, you know, I remember in the old days, you know, like in the rockers and shit, we'd be playing around and there was like a few cool like bands around like buzzing the flyers and if one of them did one of your songs it was this big compliment and it's the same compliment that way from bruce springs you know i'm not talking about the money shit and everything like that it's a big compliment that another artist thinks your shit is cool enough yes well absolutely i mean you know that's he's not the least sort of people wanting to you know you know you know it's yeah you know so uh yeah that's always you know you're always like most most you know it's the same with your job you know it's like most people who do a public job do that job 
through this process of being an introvert and also being someone who is basically solitary because to put that output out, you have to be alone a lot to compose it and to digest and to make something like that. So the very nature is you're almost like a, um, you know, you're like a fucking like, you know, prize cattle and they put you out in pasture and you eat all this green grass and everything like that so they can fucking put you up on a fucking scale and put a blue ribbon around you and slaughter you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. But, but the time the time in the pasture is wonderful. <laughs> yes. And do you, I mean, just kind of almost lastly, I mean, obviously one thing that I've noticed is that art, you know, artists still make some amazing music, you know, and I suppose David Bowie was my first, you know, single album, my first love. So I stuck with Bowie all his life. And then he did Black Star, which was this kind of amazing heavy number, which obviously is very centered around dying and death and thinking, my yeah. God, he can still create this work. And and your last couple of albums that I've been listening to a lot recently, I mean, has, has a sort of a gravitas, doesn't it? Well, my new, like, you know, I've done like, actually tomorrow I have a new record coming out with, with um, it's a crazy mix. It's me and this guitar player from a Norwegian band called TNT, who are a heavy metal band. And um, we put out a to the two of us a guitar record together, which is like um, the very, 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 very last thing you'd expect from two people like us. This record is like over the top. It's like, it's crazy. And then at the same time, during that time that I was doing that record, you know, I recorded my next record, which is called Black Valley. And um, I finished that record, but also now I'm doing Right now, I'm doing the soundtrack for a Norwegian TV show um, called Exit, and um, and that's like uh, if you mix like Leonard Cohen with Motorhead and and a Latin a Latin salsa band. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm working on a lot of stuff. You know, it's like I I like you know. But the next Leadfoot record is called Black Valley, and this record is like I think it's my favorite Leadfoot record I've ever done. Brilliant! It's Black it's, Valley. Um, it's sick as shit. Yeah. Is it then? Did you did you dig deep into the old psyche for this? Well, you know that's that's all that shit is bullshit. You know, it's like you like you know you you like um. You know, being being an artist is ninety percent of it is is the craft of learning how to express yourself. The emotional content, the more that you fucking age and the more scars you have and the more memories you have and the more failures you have and the more successes you have, you don't have to look for that fucking shit. All you have to do, is is to get better and better at interpreting it and just laying it on the table with no fucking extra herbs and spices no fucking extra accoutrements just basically say this is how i feel and the and 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 almost like universally with every artist who does something over a long period of time and i've done it for 45 years more and more i just try to uh strip away the excess and just get down to to uh, I'm that naked, I'm that ugly, 
I'm that beautiful. I'm that honest, you know, mm. and it's like, you know, and, and that's like, you know, that, so, so you actually work less as you get older, if you continue, if you've had the discipline of being an artist for that long, as you get older, when you record stuff, it's more about letting go than it is about making it right. It's just accepting the fact that like, I have been doing this for so long that I'm not gonna fuck this up, but I'm not gonna decide where I'm going. No. Do you find then that you've become better at editing your work? Yeah, of course. You know, it's like, you know, the big the big thing with every every artist, you know, one of the big hurdles that you reach as an artist when you do over years is realizing that most of the things that people love about you as an artist are the things that you hate about yourself. <laughs> you know, and 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 these these are the moments where you um can't control yourself you know where your voice like falls apart and you're going like okay fuck it we don't have a better ending fuck it you know it's one take let's just go for it and it's like that but you're really thinking that's where you're like out of tune that's where you're out of time and that's why where your voice sounds thin and pathetic and guess what that's exactly what the song is you know and 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 it's like when you realize that like you know that that um, 40% of what you do that is great is gonna be a mistake. <laughs> you know? Yes. And it's, and it's, it's about your ability to embrace those mistakes and to be objective and listen back and go like, you know what, I, you know, this guy just told me a story but the whole reason I believed him the whole time was because he had this tiny fucking twitch in his eye. Every time he said something important, you could see that it was hurting somewhere back there. And he would do this little twitch. And that's the only reason you believe it. And, you, and when you get older as an artist, you realize that that is actually your, your thumbprint, the way that you fall down. It's not the shit you do. Anybody can sing a fucking good note. Fuck that shit it's it's about how you fall down yes well it's interesting because many years ago i came to probably arizona to see this guy called michael reynolds who was building earth ships and he said he wanted the freedom <laughs> to fail did you ever see an earth ship when you were you know made out of tires no. and tires and cans well, i'll tell you when when the Havilinas we wanted to get out of electro records because we realized that like we'd lost you know the 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 honeymoon was over the honeymoon's gone. and we had to record a song and i and uh i wrote a, it it's, and it's a really good song and i don't have a take of it but i remember it literally and the only person who had a take of it was Charlo quintano who's dead now you know bless his heart my brother i love him but the song was called sometimes to fuck up is the only way to get it right <laughs> And it was it was it was better than cocksucker blues, believe me. Excellent. <laughs> I like that one. So just just last last question then. I mean, if you could have said something to an 18-year-old self, your 18-year-old self, say, mm -hmm. you know, and you could have just whispered something in their ear at that stage, you know, was there would is there something that you've kind of over the decades have thought, yeah, that's that's yeah, that. yeah but it would be, you know, look in the fucking mirror you know, and don't look around so much, you know, um, really it's like, you know, this, this like fucking simple 
thing that you do is your biggest weapon and look in the fucking mirror and recognize what it is what you do and stop looking at what other people are doing and it's because because right now we have a world full of goddamn fucking copycats and and the only reason that that anybody listens to me is because they know that i'm following my own path you know it's the only reason that you actually like you know the shit that you carry through history in your life is all the shit where you a motherfucker gave you a true message he followed his own path it's very easy to be good at like it's as easy to be a good fucking musician as it is to be a good typist who gives a shit about that being an artist and that was me in conversation with tim scott mcconnell talking about well, you just listened to it, didn't you? So I didn't need to tell you. Anyway, that is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for listening. A huge thank you to Tim for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can, for some happy reason, make it positive. On uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. I'm there-ish. And also, all these interviews have been archived. and You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Anyway, that's it. Thank you ever so much. If you're still listening, well done. You get a medal. Anyway, have a great week.